Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. So glad to have a place to talk politics and culture and important stuff without a bunch of screamers, except for me, I scream sometimes. And that way we can get to some nuance, do some deep dives, and we don't mind having some fun either. And by the way, if you like the show, tell a friend, seriously. Listeners recommending our program to their friends and family who might like it is the number one way word gets out about what we're doing here. And with that, I am your host, Glad to be crossing the divide with Jessica, the reporter. So was that a little smoother, Jess? Very good. Very good. And I just want to say people are actually getting back in their cars and going places now. So put us on in the car. We're a great listen. You don't have to worry too much about the kids overhearing something with a lot of screamers, although we do have the explicit rating and we don't know if our guest today might take advantage of that. So stay tuned. Yeah. You doing all right, Jess? Everything good? Yeah. Yeah. We're at horse camp in Pennsylvania and, uh, you know, was up all night with the three-year-old. So just another day at the office. Lovely, lovely. Uh, Without further ado, our guest today is Bill Kristol. Many know Bill from his days in government, serving in the Reagan administration, then as Vice President Dan Quayle's Chief of Staff during George H.W. Bush's presidency. Bill then went on to become founder and editor-at-large of the Weekly Standard, which not so coincidentally was the standard for conservative thinkers, with such renowned contributors as Max Boot, David Frum, Charles Krauthammer, and possibly my favorite sociological political writer ever, David Brooks, uh, in addition to guys like Tucker Carlson. But we'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, Today, Bill is editor at large of another one of my favorites, the independent media outlet, The Bulwark. We've had Charlie Sykes on here, who's also fantastic. Uh, Bill is also chairman of the board of the Republican Accountability Project, which listeners of this program will know as we've often cited the GOP Democracy Report Card. It's an important reference. And among his many other endeavors, I don't know how you, ha- how you have all the time for this, Bill, but uh, Bill has a great podcast aptly called Con- Conversations with Bill Crystal, on which he has in-depth, thought-provoking discussions with leading thinkers and figures in American public life. But today, we get to have our own conversation with Bill Crystal, and we are truly honored to have it. Bill Crystal. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm fine. It's my pleasure to join you. And thank you for that excessively kind introduction. My my general experience has been whenever people give you that kind of glowing introduction, you're about to be taken down <laughs> and debunked and, you know, and, He's on and, guard. and embarrassed in a bunch of ways. So I'm not defensive or anything. And you okay. guys go right ahead and do your thing here. Let me, I don't think this will embarrass you, but uh, you, you can always say uh, move on. But I don't think you will. I want to start this way. I've been doing a lot of reading, not only of a lot of your past work, but also of two other individuals whose work is so uh, erudite, uh, so literate, challenging, thought-provoking, two people I would have loved to have met. Uh, Those two people are your parents, Irving Crystal and Gertrude Himmelfarb. 
And having read so much of their stuff, I am so curious what the typical dinner conversations were like growing up in the Crystal household in the 50s and 60s. Well, it's nice of you to say nice things about my parents. And I think their, their writing is worth certainly worth reading. My father's essays on America and democracy and many, many topical issues, but, but also beyond topical issues, uh, challenges to capitalism and liberal democracy. My mother was a distinguished historian, mostly of Great Britain, 19th century Great Britain, various Victorian and post-Victorian, pre-Victorian thinkers, but also then more, more broadly also about America and other other. Uh, historical topics. So, um, yeah, it was nice. They were good parents, I've got to say. And, um, but, you know, they went out of their way a little bit, I think, in contrast to friends of theirs in the New York intellectual circles in the 60s when I was growing up, not to try to have the house be, you know, the apartment be at all, you know, a hot house or whatever. I mean, they were who they were. They had the friends they had. So I, I probably grew up with more books and more professors at dinner than, you know, the, the typical person for better and worse. Uh, but we really, you know, I played a lot of sports. I was not very good, but I, I tried to play a lot of sports. My father and I were both uh, big sports fans. So a lot of what we did is watch Mets games and Jets games and Knicks games on TV and go to a fair number, actually go to Chase Stadium and Madison Square Garden. We were uh, not terribly observant Jews, but, you know, uh, uh, synagogue attending or at least bar mitzvah i was bar mitzvah is uh, actually an orthodox synagogue oddly enough yeah. on the west side so there was a certain amount of interest in jewish things in our house and and then just the normal you know school and friends uh we lived in riverside drive in new york i used to go to the park to play at various sports i said not that well but i baseball in, in the summer and basketball and and some touch football and so really, I, 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 everyone wants some dramatic story about, you know, my, uh, not everyone, but sometimes people think there should be some dramatic stories of me learning Latin at age four, or, you know, discussing uh, um, Plato at age seven, but there really wasn't much of that. I did obviously some of it rubbed off and I probably, as I say, had more exposure to different thinkers uh, than, than some of my peers. We had we had lived in England from when I was about six months old till about six years old. My father edited a magazine there. So a little more exposure, maybe also to friends who come whom they knew from there, visit us. And so it was a kind of cosmopolitan, I guess you would say, apartment in New York you know, house. Uh, growing up in a somewhat cosmopolitan atmosphere, we, we got magazines from England as well as from America. But again, pretty, uh, they, they, they always went out of their way not to impose too much of that on me. Yeah. All right. Here's the burning question. How are the matzo balls? So my well, my grandmother from Brooklyn uh, was a, a who and my other my father's parents uh, his father passed away and then they his father remarried and they moved out to California in the mid fifties so I knew them you know reasonably well but we saw them every six months or something the way you do if you, in those days especially if grandparents yeah. lived three thousand miles away my my mother's parents lived in Brooklyn in Bensonhurst we were close to them. I mean, we saw them probably every week. Often went out there on Sunday or they came to visit with us. And then my grandmother ended up after my grandfather died living with my parents for quite a while as, yeah. as she was quite elderly so uh long way of saying that yes my grandmother did a lot of cooking and uh my father was always very polite but always privately confided that he didn't think she was the greatest uh, cook of, of her generation but she was a very hard-working and dutiful cook so yeah. we had matzo balls and kreplos and all these all these uh aspects I like of you're being Europe. very diplomatic about eastern the european here. jewish thinking but then so then i got married and susan has more okay. some, uh, from a different jewish background with more diverse influences i would say and she makes very good matzo ball soup actually all right not off the back of the Man manischewitz box at least like my grandmother 
Well, maybe that's good. I don't know. <laughs> we have a lot more in common than I realized. Uh, first of all, my father is from Bensonhurst. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I went to a Orthodox synagogue for Hebrew school and bar mitzvah there, Hebrew high school. My father actually taught when I was at the high school age uh, at that at that shul. Um, but I part of my story, I became a Christian about 20 something years ago. But here's the thing. I, he, they were obviously very heartbroken. They didn't quite get to the point of sitting Shiva for me. But if I went home and said, I'm a Christian, and by the way, I'm no longer a Mets fan, I'm a Yankees fan, then they definitely would have sat Shiva for me. But <laughs> well, that's, that's first thing is first thing is first. That's unusual. The Bensonhurst thing is kind of unusual because it was not, it was a partly Jewish neighborhood, but a lot yeah. of Italians, as I recall. And it wasn't one of the really famous Jewish neighborhoods of Brooklyn, really. So yeah, it's rare that I run into someone else who, who who knows that area a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. But you know, so the other thing, uh, the more serious question, uh, and and it really sparked my imagination as I uh, read a little bit about your family. Uh, both your parents were the children of Jewish immigrants, as you said, from Eastern Europe and Russia, as my uh, grandparents' generation and great-grandparents' generation was. Um, they were in their formative years intellectually during World War II and then emerged in Jewish conservative intellectual circles. Did you get to talk to them about their ideas and beliefs and the movements they were engaged in? And the, it was like the decade or so before you were born that, that I'm, uh, really fascinates me. Yeah, it fascinated me kind of as a kid, too, because it was such a different world. I mean, I grew up middle class, upper middle class, maybe ultimately on the Upper West Side of New York. But uh, they had grown up, the children of immigrants uh, in, in Brooklyn had gone to you know New York public schools and then to City College, in my father's case, in Brooklyn College and my mother's. So it was a different. Yeah, it was interesting. Just, you know, it's only one generation apart, but it's kind of a different world. So I had a lot of just curiosity about it and they liked talking about it. They still had a lot of friends from their youth, too. So people would come over and reminisce about things. One of the things that caught my attention that that wasn't necessarily intuitive, at least for somebody like me that only knows the neoconservative movement on a surface level. Uh, for example, your mother went to uh, Trotskyite uh, meetings. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, they weren't, I'd say they weren't, they were, lib well, when I grew up in the 60s, when I was old enough to begin to understand about these things, they were uh, kind of anti-communist liberals, I would say, old-fashioned liberals, very with conservative, some open to conservatism, though. Some of my mother's historical work had been about figures who are now considered sort of conservatives, whether it's Disraeli in England or Lord Acton, and 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 somewhat she was hostile or corrected some of the more progressive interpretations of some of these figures and so forth. My father always had a contrarian streak, and that he was never a kind of if I can put it this way, simple-minded liberal progressive who just thought everything's getting better and the UN's going to solve all our problems and stuff. But they were traditional liberals, pro-civil rights, and certainly voted for Hubert Humphrey and people like that in, in presidential elections. They really be turned, as many, many people did, became neoconservatives in the 70s when, depending on who you talk to, either liberalism changed or they changed or some of both. But And then they ended up being, you know, for Reagan by 1980, but always a little bit different from the standard, I'd say, conservative movement. So it wasn't so much that. Um, so, yeah, so they're there. But they had been Marxists when they were very young, as many people were in the 30s and the late 30s and the height of the Great Depression. Many intellectuals, many young intellectuals, they were Trotskyites, which meant they liked Leon Trotsky, which 
which mostly meant they didn't like Stalin. They wanted to be Marxist, but anti-Stalin, anti-Soviet mm. Union, anti-purchase, anti-totalitarian. And the one way you could do that was be a Trotskyite, because Trotsky was never in power, so you couldn't really prove what he would have done. And he was also an eloquent writer and a, and a sort of symbolic figure murdered by Stalin in Mexico in 1940. But they quickly drifted away from that. So by, my father, I think, wrote later on that his experience of being in the army in World War II disabused him of mm. sort of socialist notions about if only the common men and women would just take over everything, everything would be run better. And he sort of saw, you know, what a lot of people are really like. And he became a little less of a romantic about, you know, the working man and the common man and, and, and all this. Um, my mother studied history and she started off when she went to the, so she went to Brooklyn College. I think was the first woman maybe to, to go study history in graduate school at the University of Chicago. There weren't that many, mm. you know, women getting PhDs in that, in that day. And originally was going to write a, a PhD thesis on the French Revolution on Robespierre. And I think uh, didn't. And I think one reason was that she became pretty convinced that that had, French Revolution was not something that simply be admired, that it that had gone off the rails. That's pretty obvious. But also that it there was something about it that made it go off the rails mm. by contrast with British liberalism or American liberalism. So they were kind of liberals who disliked by the time I you know, was conscious of these things, who were anti-communists, certainly, and anti the far left in general. So, you know, in those days, that made you a Humphrey Democrat or a Scoop Jackson Democrat. Pat Moynihan was a good friend of theirs. So that would be another kind of example of that. I, you know, those of us like me today, I'm sort of a Repo ex-Republican or something, or maybe ex-Republican, or what does Pete Buttigieg call people like me, a future former Republican um, who, who let, voted for Biden. So I feel like I've come full circle, you know, and I'm back to sort of centrist Democrats who are, fight some with the left wing of their own party, but also reject the illiberalism of the right. And I think that's consistent with their thought, generally speaking. But in between, for about 1980 to, you know, my father died in 2009, they, they were much more, they were more conservative, I think, for, for many good reasons, especially this Cold War, and then other reasons. And, um, and uh, you know, more identified with the Republican Party, as was I from the time I came to Washington in the mid-80s. I love the way your, your, your father summed up neoconservatism uh, as it, it's a persuasion and a neocon is a liberal who has been mugged by reality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, a, you know, it's that that's one of his most famous lines. I don't think he ever wrote it. So it's like an oral, you know, he said it, I guess he really did say it. He yeah. was waiting. It was good at those kinds of formulations and someone reported it at some point in the seventies and it, it, it became sort of took hold and became famous and crime was a huge problem then. And he was making the point that an awful lot of good-hearted liberals who believes in the great society and all the you know big government programs suddenly when they didn't work very well and when crime really skyrocketed and parts of new york became much more difficult for actually not just well-off people but working class people and poor people to live decent lives and suddenly you know you got mugged and you realize so maybe we need to be a little tougher on enforcing the law and worrying about why crime is going up so much and all that so yes it was it was a joke that captured a kind of you know a, a pretty real truth though right well you were you you have extensive experience at harvard and um I know you just got done with a fellowship at the Institute of Politics there. I'm curious, and we're fast forwarding quite quite forward right. um, a different part of your life, but what was what's the sentiment there politically? How politically engaged are people? Could you find any conservative thinkers or right of center thinkers um, while on campus? Uh, anyone who's particularly, for example, interested in helping shape the future of the Republican Party? 
So when I was at Harvard originally in college and grad school, I was pretty much for the decade of the 70s. Uh, there were conservatives on the faculty and there were old fashioned liberals on the faculty. And really in those days, at least at Harvard, uh, most of the faculty went pretty far not to get their personal political views, you know, not really? to show them in the classroom or, wow. or, or, and they taught what they taught. So you could get a good education. And, and I mean, the, overwhelmingly the student body was on the left. In 1972, uh, there was a poll in the, in the Harvard Crimson, the student paper. Mm-hmm. And I think 91% of the students were from a governor the Democratic Peace candidate who was a great you know, champion, an anti-war champion. Um, 3% were for Richard Nixon in the general election. And 5% were for Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Panther candidate. So Nixon ran behind the, the Black Panthers at Harvard in <laughs> 72. But I've got to say the atmosphere was, so one new one was in a minority, one went to debates and there'd be a little bit of, you know, hackling or something. But it was a pretty tolerant environment and a pretty good educational environment, honestly, I think. I then taught at Harvard a little bit in the 80s and then went back and taught occasionally in the 2000s. And so I have had sort of a foot in the academy or half a foot maybe, you know, over the years. I do think one thing that's gotten a little bit worse, maybe more than a little bit worse, is the the old fashioned sense that, you know, politics is one thing and education is another. It was never fully that way, of course, can't ever be fully that way, uh, has really eroded a lot. And I just think that the next generation of two or two of professors much more willing to be not just political in their writing, which they're certainly entitled to be, but uh, let it spill over a little bit more into their teaching. Having said all that, I've always had good experiences there. Um, I gotta say, I did teach, so I led this um, reading group at the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School this past spring. So that was the spring of 2020. It was entirely virtual, it was on Zoom. I, I, I accepted it hoping I could, you know, be fun to go back to Harvard a couple of days a week, two, three days a week. You know, Susan, my wife would also as a Harvard grad, we'd go back, we still have friends there. But of course, uh, it ended up not to be being on Zoom, but which was fine. I mean, but it wasn't quite the same experience. So I mean I say that partly because you learn less about the students yeah. if you're not there. You know, you know, they don't have coffee after class. They come to your quote office hours virtually. So I got to I met a fair number though, I feel like, and I enjoyed my conversations with them. But it's not the same as sitting around, you know, after class or before class or someone just drops by your office unannounced or you even have dinner with students and so forth. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. The students were very uh, intelligent and interesting. I, I've got to say the thing that struck me the most and this will sound like I'm being politically correct, but I'm really not. I'm just making an empirical observation is how diverse the students were. And I, I mean that I couldn't tell about their politics entirely. I think that's probably mostly liberal, but there were some conservatives, but also just from all over the world, from many different immigrant backgrounds. In my day, they were the sort of old fashioned Harvard people. Then there were the people like me who were the kids of, you know, Jew, Jewish, you know, grandchildren of Jewish immigrants who were making in the world, some other immigrants of that nature, yeah, a few African-Americans. I mean, now it's just, you know, it is, America's changed a lot. You really see it when you see, you know, a swath of 18 year olds mm. and you see how many are the children of immigrants or the grandchildren of immigrants from a ton of different countries all around the world. Mm. And I was super impressed with them. I mean, I've been very pro-immigration in the last few years, partly because of Trump, but I'm seeing these young people and, you know, just maybe think we're getting, I mean, it's such an advantage for the United States to be the place that if you're energetic, ambitious, you know, among the probably more intelligent or, you know, people who can conceive of going to another country and making another life for themselves, which is pretty challenging when you think about it. I mean, we're the place they want to come such a huge advantage for us yeah. in terms of science, scientific advancement, technology, business, but I think the culture as a whole. 
I, it really reinforced my pro-immigration biases. And um, and not all these, some people were the, themselves the children of professionals. And so you could say, well, we should be careful and take, you know, doctors and computer engineers, computer scientists. But a lot of them were not. A lot of them were the children of people who came over as refugees, as fleeing oppression, mm. you know, and, and, and their parents worked whatever jobs they could get, you know, and they still made a great, uh, see these kids, I think will have a great future. Anyway, I found the whole thing pretty, um, like fun and pretty inspiring in a way, and somewhat reassuring. I think for all the conservative talk about indoctrination on campus and political correctness and conformity, and there are real problems. And I think social media has created a big problem in terms of people feeling unable to even speculate on something because it'll get taken out of context and they'll be, you know, mobbed, so to speak. So there are real problems. I don't want to minimize that. But on the whole, I was reassured that uh, you know, people aren't being brainwashed and the younger generation is not worse than the older generation. And these young men and women are, are, are going to, you know, make a lot of themselves and be good, good American citizens, I think. Do you think that there is any way to reach them for conservative causes? I mean, if, if they're not currently in line with that, is there anything as they grow up or anything that you saw as, as being a way that, you know, sort of a, a resonation for them of, of some more conservative thought that that would, I would find that really interesting to know. It's a very good, you know, it's a big question, obviously one that was, we discussed a lot. The students actually had talked about a lot because a lot of them would say, look, I'm a, I've been on the conservative side of things. My, my dad's in the military or I'm, I, or I'm, you know, I, I worked, I'm a young aspiring businessman or woman. And I, I, so I'm sort of pro free market or pro, you know, a hawkish foreign policy or something. Uh, or from a religious family. And it makes me more inclined to be on the conservative side of the spectrum. A lot of them were this very young. You forget how young 19, 20 year olds are, but they don't remember much, but they sort of remember enough to know that they like their, their parents, at least like McCain, or they were for Romney or, you know, or local politicians of that nature. And the, most of them are not for Trump, especially the ones, especially I assume took my reading group since it was, you know, I'm not very, thought to be particularly friendly to Trump, though there were a few who defended Trump and that was fine, but, um, or semi-defended Trump. Anyway, they weren't pro-Trump. And then a lot of the questions were exactly what you asked. I mean, what can I do? I, I sort of think I'm a conservative, but I, I can't stand the Trumpy Republican party. I can't stand the nativism, the demagoguery. Is there a future for me? And I would say, look, you know, you never know, right? But things could change. They've changed before. They changed recently to reduce Trump and Trumpism. They could change again. My main advice then also was don't be too dogmatic about what's conservative and what's liberal. I mean, what's liberal mm -hmm. in one era can be conservative in another, what the character of these yeah, parties important. change. And I, I was just in a discussion with some young people at this the other day here in DC, a very good group of young students who in a summer program here in DC, not a Harvard program. And this came up a lot when these, this was a more conservative oriented students. It's kind of a conservative-ish program. And and I I guess I ended up saying, look, don't think so, don't think so much about how you are, how can you be a conservative? How do you intersect with conservatism? Just think about what you believe about things, advance what you think is right, join the kinds of organizations that you whose causes you believe in and, and the people you admire. And, you know, let the world sort out whether that's ultimately, quote, conservative or, quote, liberal or some new thing in between or different. You know, the, the, we've gotten mm -hmm. so partisan and polarized that we, we do want to put everything right away in some box, you know. And and I think, you know, I was surprised that even these 20-year-olds think that way. You think they, oh, you know, yeah. they, why do they care? Why do they care if 
if Ronald, honestly, if Ronald Reagan said X or if some liberals said Y, it's all before they were born, but they are still kind of thinking in those categories. And I've sort of, the last few, this experience at Harvard and then this last week made me think, be good to really just kind of get people to take a look at the world. What should we be doing? What works? What doesn't work? What's healthy? What's bad for society? And so forth. And, you know, think about that a little more than, you know, worrying that, well, gee, I don't quite fit with this group here. Now, in a practical way, if you want to run for office, and you got to think about that kind of stuff. And if you, yeah. so I'm not saying you can just avoid it. Well, I think you're running into questions of identity, right? I mean, they don't want to be labeled in a certain, and how do I label myself appropriately? That seems very age and generational appropriate. Yeah, that's a very good point, Jessica. I mean, I, I, I would say when I was, I'm older than you, but I had quite a lot. I mean, when I was young, we really didn't think of that as central to our labels. I mean, you saw a little bit in the Vietnam War, I guess, but the new left, but I don't know, politics and the parties especially were really secondary. Politics was important, mm. but the Republican Democrat, there were liberal Republicans, there were conservative Democrats, there were all kinds of politicians who you didn't trust anyway, and you admired thinkers more than politicians or artists. I mean, I don't know, I, I do feel like the partisanship has become much more a part of people's identity yeah. than it used to be. And maybe that's no one that's caused by a million different things, obviously. And, and maybe it's not all for the worse, but I think it can be for the worse. I think it's not the healthiest, you know, it's unfortunate that people have to spend too much time thinking about Republican and Democrat instead of about the content of these ideas and, and policies. Something you said just reminded me of a column that you wrote for the New York times in 2008, after opening with a more charitable view of Sarah Palin, then uh, I think uh, it was Peggy Noonan that uh, wasn't as charitable. You, you said conservatives' hearts have always beaten a little faster when they read Horace's famous line, I hate the ignorant crowd and I keep them at a distance. But is the ignorant crowd really our problem today? You went on to say, are populism and anti-intellectualism rampant in the land? Does the common man too thoroughly dominate our national life? I don't think so. You said since World War II, the American people have resisted the temptations of isolationism and protectionism and turned their backs on a history of bigotry. I joined them in taking my stand with Joe the plumber in defiance of Horace the poet. Now, I'm not going to have you account for everything that you've written over the years. You've written quite a bit um, and how it holds up. But a couple questions. In light of that view in late 2008, how much has the landscape changed? Have we resisted the temptations of isolationism, protectionism? Have we re-embraced bigotries? And to what extent were figures like Sarah Palin and Joe the Plumber or canaries in the coal mine? No, I think that's a very fair question and a good question. It's something I've thought about some, though I didn't recall that column. It's, it's kind of interesting to hear it in retrospect. So I think generally, People, me and people like me thought from about 1980, let's just say, to, to 20, 2008, that on the whole, the American people have been pretty sensible about most big policy issues, you know, in terms of uh, that the intellectuals had often been wrong. They've been the ones who believed in uh, you know, myths about the Soviet Union or about the post, what would happen after the wall fell, and, and also various policy myths, both on the left and to some degree on the right, Pat Buchanan and stuff. And the public had kind of shaken that off and had elected Bill Clinton and then George W. Bush and and had, you know, beaten back the extremes of both sides and and policies were, you know, there were some tough things in the world, obviously, but policies were pretty sensible. Uh, and so I was much more, you know, frankly, pro-American public <laughs> and skeptical of elites maybe than 
than I should have been. Uh, I think the skeptical of the elites part maybe was right, but but yeah, there was a kind of romanticizing on my part, probably of Joe the Plumber and if that matter, Sarah Palin, whom I knew very did met once and who seemed to be a decent governor of Alaska, and I kind of assumed would end up being a somewhat more populous than I was or than John McCain was, but kind of a useful you know, dose of populism in a politics that had gotten a little too. In, you know, insular and elitist. That, that wasn't a crazy view, I think. A lot of people had that view at the time. Uh, she turned out to be totally not up to the task. So I, I, I was just wrong in that. I didn't know her well, but I was wrong in that judgment. Though I will say, only sentence I'll say in my defense on that was in 2008, she wasn't isolationist or nativist or bigoted at all. I mean, she was a McCain running mate. She supported McCain's policies. She was kind of a combative person, you know, got it, got conservatives excited, but she wasn't uh, terribly mean-spirited or anything like that. So I, I think she turned out to be not what not what one hopes. But I do think, yes, there was a little bit of romanticism about the public, which did probably slow down the degree to which people like me saw the nativism, which you could see in the immigration debate, some of the bigotry, some of the resentments and anxieties bubbling beneath the surface. I mean, I think people like me at the time thought, well, okay, people have these resentments and anxieties. They, some of them were legitimate, of course, or at least understandable. And we need to sort of channel them into the system. And that was kind of not a ridiculous idea. I mean, that's a, what you that's what a healthy system does, right? It takes accounts of the public's views and, and uh, tries to kind of educate, you know, give them an outlet, so to speak, but also educate them in the course of doing that. And instead, um, the opposite happened in a sense, and especially with Trump's demagoguery, uh, that really hit a nerve and it turned out various other things coincided with it at the same time. And uh, yes, everything went in the other direction. And 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 to it with a speed and a, uh, a steepness of decline that, None of us thought possible. So if you had said, to, yes, I mean, I am shocked. But I just look at the American public today and, you know, a third of them are refusing to take vaccines. And, and you know, some of them just have doubts and they're a little hesitant and they'll do it if they have to. But a half of that third are just crazy, you know, are in the middle of conspiracy theories and are berating people who are trying to do the right thing. And are, you know, they speak about their fellow Americans in tones that really was confined to a pretty small minority on both sides, I would say 20 or 30 years ago. It has now become mainstream, at least on the right. Left is the liberals have actually done a better job of disciplining their borders, I would say, though there's some of that, of course. So no, I think I was overly hopeful about the ability to channel populism in a constructive way. And uh, now we're in a but, and also, once this starts to spiral downhill, it tends to have a self-reinforcing character. So everyone now has to be worse than the next person. So we've gone in from you know a certain amount of demagoguery in 2014 to sort of insane levels here, and it's only six, seven years later. Yeah, yeah. I've been following uh, David French's and Sarah Isger's conversations around the freedom of speech and libel cases and speech codes on campuses. I'm really curious to see how things move forward. For example, will there be some sort of, this might be pie in the sky, but will there be some sort of class action suit against individual uh, media personalities or maybe even networks that have promoted uh, anti-science, you know, dangerous anti-vaccine theories? Is there account accountability of any sort, you know, or in the broader scale of free speech, you know, while we believe in the freedom of speech, is it healthy for our culture for everyone to have a microphone? 
but that's uh, I guess that's another issue. We'll be well, listening. no, I mean, I'll just say a word about it, though, since it's interesting. I mean, hey, we're not going to turn around technology, so people yeah. will have there are some good things about everyone having microphones. We have microphones. Obviously. What's that? I and there's an <laughs> argument that I shouldn't have one. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I mean, I would say in the early years, in the early years of the internet, you know, what of podcasts and everything else, I was a big defender, and I think correctly so, of the democratization of information, the extent to which you, you wanted to break up the clubby world of, you know, the people who could wrote for three or four papers and got themselves on television. I was part of that world, so, I mean, but in many ways, but it was not healthy for a massive democracy like I was. So I was very much a fan of the kind of dispersion of influence uh, of microphones, if you want to put it that way. And I... I still would defend it on the whole. Anyway, it's not going to be changed because the technology is sort of like trying to repeal the printing press and worrying about everyone buys books, you know, God knows what ideas they'll have. And people did worry about that a lot. There's a reason the Catholic Church did not allow people to just print Bibles and translate them into the Vulgate, into the vulgar languages, right? Because they didn't want everyone just coming up with what they would have regarded as kind of their own interpretations and crackpot ideas. And so they wanted to control information. And of course, other, other regimes have tried done that a lot. We're not going to do that. We shouldn't even try to do that. It really is not a good idea for me. And so the fact that you have a lot of crackpots, some demagogues, some panderers, some troublemakers, that's not that new and probably is to be expected. And there'll be some more of them because of the widespread availability of microphones, as, as you put it. For me, the, the failure has been the failure. So the public is the public. You know, it's going to be a mixed bag. The failure is the failure of the elites. To, 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 to hold anyone accountable, just what you were saying, and responsible, and the indulgence of these kinds of things. You know, I, with Trump, the fact that Trump's a very effective demagogue, the fact that a demagogue could win the nomination of one of our two major parties, people didn't usually happen, but you, it, you can imagine, one could always have imagined it happening. Win the presidency, unfortunate, but okay, one term, maybe not so terrible. The story for me of the last several years is the total collapse of Republican elites and conservative elites in, in accommodating, rationalizing, excusing, and enabling uh, Trump and Trumpism more broadly. And not all of them are out there screaming and yelling the conspiracy theories, promoting the big lie, but a heck of a lot of them are not challenging it. And a heck of a lot of them are quietly going along, or mumbling a little bit, or sort of echoing it as much as they have to to stay alive. And that's, I think, been hugely damaging. So, and that I, I can't say I would have expected. I mean, someone like, you know, they don't, uh, people have put their political careers first, I guess, but even within the boundaries of kind of staying in office, they've been so much worse than they need to have been, I guess I would say. And they could have, I think, done a lot of good for this country by stopping a lot of this earlier on. But now we're in a situation where everyone is so used to enabling the demagogues and not taking them on that when someone like Liz Cheney just says in a very commonsensical way, hey, we cannot have a country where, you know, we're just telling people the election was stolen when it wasn't, when we've incited this January 6th insurrection, and when we're now not going to come to grips with what happened, and we can't have a party, she's saying, where we're just going to pretend Trump was kind of a normal politician. And you know what, if he runs in 2024, that'd be great. If, you know, why not support him? And she's unwilling to say that. And now she's the outcast. I mean, that that's a very bad situation. Yeah. But remember, she was supposed to raise money for the party in that capacity. So she was at odds with the leadership on the messaging. So right. I feel like she, she, she was a canary in the coal mine. She has a right to her opinion, but at the same time, she's part of machinery that's supposed to accomplish the agenda of the Republican party, which she really no longer was in line with. 
Well, that's only because the agenda of the Republican Party was justifying the big lie. She's in line yeah. with the economic agenda, the foreign policy agenda, you know. So. But they want to raise money for people that believe in the big lie. So she can't do that if she doesn't right. believe in the big lie. Right. Yeah. So, so from that perspective, I mean, I understand the decision. I also understand that that she should have and had to stand up for her, her beliefs. But I think there's always a little more nuance about those situations than sometimes we know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a choice that a lot of folks make. Um, one example, I kind of teased it in the in the intro, uh, you know, some of these folks and, and along the way, it strikes me that you have to make certain decisions. So I was reading through some of you um, published some of the best of the weekly standard 95 to 2000 and 2000 to 2005, which by the way, a lot of this work really holds up and it's really worth diving into. But I came across one, it was really good. It was about the McCain 2000 campaign and the writer was Tucker Carlson and really like good writer. I, I would read more of this writer's stuff, but <laughs> I mean, you know, what he's putting out now, has he fundamentally changed? Have his principles fundamentally changed? Or was it all just an act? Or is it all just an act now? Like, I'm just my- he's running for office. Tucker? Tucker 2024? Yes, he's totally going to run for office. He's I mean, isn't, president. How, how, else do you, how else do you go this direction when you, oh, let me see, where's the Republican Party going? Oh, it's going hard right? Okay, so let me, you know, lead the pack. Really? That's is that question. what you think, Jess? Oh, yeah. In Tucker's oh, case. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm curious, Bill, like you, you knew him. Uh, I don't know how well you know him now, but I mean, it just baffled my mind reading his yeah, work. I mean, I, I would, I don't know if Jess is right that he's literally running for office. He certainly wants to be famous and wealthy and, and have adoring crowds. And so I agree that a lot, that is a large part of the psychology under it. it it's hard to, you know, I know a lot of people who got in directions I don't approve of and really am surprised by. And sometimes you look back, of course, this is true in life in general, like in private life, right? If people disappoint you and our friends, you know, uh, friends, uh, I don't know, whatever, you look back into uh, situations and you see, yeah, I saw a germ of that before. I didn't really want to think about it, but I'm not surprised that, I don't know, you know, this neighbor has run off with someone and left his wife because it turned out he always had a slight tendency in that direction, even though we sort of looked aside. So there's a little bit of that with all these people that you sort of look back and you can see things that you didn't want to see earlier. But I, I would say that's not usually the case for me. It's more the opposite, that I, I'm sort of shocked, honestly, that they were willing to go as far down this road as they have. Maybe I shouldn't be shocked. Maybe I'm being silly, though, you know. And and, and to be fair, they're younger and they have careers. For, you know, it's way easier for me in my 60s to say, no, I won't accept that. Uh, you know, I'm not giving away the next 20, 30 years of, you know, my of a public life or and so forth. So, uh, thing is, Tucker is a student of history. I remember producing a live shot with him maybe 10 years ago, and I didn't share this earlier when you were talking about your parents, Bill, but my grandparents met at a progressive party meeting in New York City in the, right after they came back from World War II. Wow. And they, they never lost their progressivism, just, you know, uh, became huge civil rights integration advocates in their own neighborhood, et cetera, on Long Island, bought their ho house on the GI Bill. But they, uh, he knew he was, he's such a student of political history. He knew exactly who the candidates were that year. I couldn't even tell you to, to tell you now. Right. So it seems to me like, you know, in, in the case of someone like him, and I don't know him personally and talk to him regularly at this point, he, he, he knows what the past tells us about the future. And, and the past doesn't tell us good things about this direction. Wait, that's what, so that's what I would think that you, therefore why <laughs> go down it. But I right. think, but I think the problem over the last several years has been, People like us, I don't really know you, but I'm, so people in our world have, have said, 
to a lot of people signing on with Trump or echoing Trump or going further the next step in the Fox News universe and saying, you know, this is not going to work out well for you. I mean, this is really, A, it's bad in its own right to play, you know, to be so indulgent of and encouraging of nativism, prejudice and so forth, demagoguery, but B, it doesn't work out ultimately. And we said that, they nodded, and then they went ahead and took the next step. And you know what? They're doing well. Short term. Well, but by now the short term is five, six years, right? You know, <laughs> people's lives, they don't think that. So a lot of people who were told, boy, it's a big risk for you to go down this path, they're sitting there, they're be, and this I do think is underestimated by, frankly, by, people, by liberals who just can't even like imagine doing this, which maybe yeah. is to their credit, but they, they, they just sort of, what is this person doing? Is he, no one's ever going to talk, you know, he's going to be a disgrace. Well, they will feel like they're disgraces. Matt Ga- even Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is a whole different level, I think. Yeah. But they're, you know, they're doing better than it. They, th- they thought at best they would be a first-term Congress member of Congress whom no one had ever heard of, you know, working in some boring, you know, committee something. They've got huge crowds. They're on Fox all the time. They're, they've got millions of people who look up to them and, and, and hang on their words. Now, they've got tens of millions of people who think they're crazy and, and despicable even. But the way the world works these days, too, with the silos, you can spend much more of your time with your million fans than with your 10 million detractors. And as I say, they're literally getting wealthy, a ton of these people. And so I think the degree to which the, these, it, it hasn't, they have not yet paid a price. I take your point, Jess, about maybe short-term, medium-term kind of thing, but th- that's a very important part. And same with the politicians. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader of the House, everyone I know is like, oh, he looks pathetic. He's sucking up to Trump one day. He's trying to go a little bit the other direction the next day. Doesn't he have any spine? What doesn't he care how he looks? Kevin McCarthy thinks, I'm leader of the Republican Party. I've managed to kind of hold all the pieces kind of together without anything blowing up. He has a 50-50 chance, would you say, of becoming speaker in 2023. I'm doing pretty well here. You know, they're all saying I should be being like Liz Cheney, but look where Liz Cheney is and look where I am. So I think the degree to which they haven't paid a price is a very important part of understanding the whole Trumpist phenomenon. Yeah, and if after his comments about Nancy Pelosi and and gaveling on her don't uh, flow up in his face, you know- And they won't, will they? I mean- I don't think so. No. I don't think so. One one thing we all have in common is sort is our, our Jewish ancestry, and I I just I feel oh, like yeah. that's a part of how you look at things. And you know when when you talk to especially Germans and Jews about what we've already seen about the past, and of course we uh, you know Germans romanticize to a certain ex- extent that, uh, but they do spend a lot of time talking about how they got into Nazism and how they got into the, the lockstep thinking that led to the atrocities of World War II and the, the mass uh, Holocaust. I just have to wonder if that's part of what guides you as a, as a, a political thinker in sort of, of, of charting a different path and being willing to chart a different path than, than sort of the, the wasps of the party or the, the, non, the, the, the folks who haven't really had a close experience with totalitarianism leading to atrocity and how quickly we can get on that path as human beings. Yeah, I think that has, I mean, it's hard to, you know, psychoanalyze yourself and say what causes you to go to a certain direction. But I do think Jews have been sort of disproportionately Jewish conservatives. Some have gone along, some of them who really are pro-Israel, and I am too, but to put aside everything else because Trump has been in his own way pro-Israel and so forth. But I do think there's more sensitivity to the price you may pay for indulging in this kind of demagoguery. And for now, it looks like, oh, come on, it's a little bit of rough talk, you know, but is it really going anywhere? And it's still America. People are 
protected. But I think we do see maybe a little more how quickly, and I think we're right about this, how quickly those protections can start to get eroded if people get used to this kind of discourse and this kind of behavior even. And I would say this is true of other immigrants and, and children of immigrants. I've been mm. struck by that. If you look in the circles I now move in, which let's call them never Trump sort of ex-Republican-ish type <laughs> circles, they're a disproportionate number of children of immigrants all over. I, I did a converse, those conversations. I do the conversations with Bill Crystal. I did a, a good one, I think, with um, Roya Hakekian, who's in Iraq, came over from Iran at age 19 in 1985. Actually, she went to Brooklyn College, actually, uh, you know, because as an immigrant. and Another so good a, sign. He, yeah, and she got off like I mean, literally got off the plane and sort of went to didn't speak English really much, but not, nonetheless was able to go to a, a college. And now she's teaches at Yale and so forth. But as uh, a poet and writer, but she has much more sensitivity to sort of both the, the benefits of American tolerance and a kind of uh, civility and giving everyone a chance, maybe bending over backwards a little bit to give everyone a chance, even if the customs of these people are a little strange to us, or, or you know, you think that they're taking a job from you at some level or from your kids. Um, she has much more sensitivity to that and also much more sensitivity on the flip side to what can go wrong. She was a teenager, I guess, a young teenager during the Iranian revolution. They had great hopes they were gonna be liberated from the Shah. It was gonna be a free, freer country. And then they end up with, Khomeini and, you know, what they, the, the mullahs and so forth. So I do think there's a correlation uh, in general between people who have some family connection, historical connection, lived memory of those kinds of things happening elsewhere in the world. And people maybe like Tucker Carlson, who just thinks he can indulge in all this and nothing good is fundamentally going to get you know, going to get lost maybe. And meanwhile, it's kind of fun to be being outrageous and all this. You'd think COVID, I mean, you think some of these practical things on the other hand would have brought it home to people that, I mean, it kind of does matter if you discredit science so much that people are getting sick and dying, you know, and, and getting other people sick unnecessarily. And, but you'd think that would be the reality. It's talking about being bugged by reality, you know, and I would have said, honestly, two years ago, that God forbid this something like this happens, but this would be kind of a mugging by reality. People would say, wait a second, we can indulge in silliness about a lot of things. We got it, you know, we can the flag and kneeling for the national anthem and every symbolic stupid thing you want to obsess about. But this is kind of, you've got to be serious about this. But it turns out that's not what happens. It's the opposite. All the kind of performative symbolism spills over into the substantive areas. And suddenly everyone's deciding not to get a vaccine because it makes them feel like they're standing up to the left-wing authorities or something, I guess. Well, I think there's also a lot of distrust of the government and that just that no, yeah. no sense of what, what is real anymore with between the influence of social media, the disintegration of, of fairness in the, in, the, um, you know, in the mainstream media and sort of being an arbiter of truth. Um, but that's just my two cents. No, I think that's a very important point. But I would also say then in response, you know, to add to that, one way to handle that would be if you live in a red state in Florida or Texas or whatever, if the governor, whom you probably voted for, if you're one of these people, Abbott or Sassantis, if they had been lecturing from the first, look, I have huge political problems with the Biden administration and I got this, but, but we need to do this. We can't yeah. mess around with this. It would have been very different from the kind of fostering of this distrust, which already was there, as you say, mm -hmm. and, and which has now led to such disastrous consequences. Yeah, and there are some. To be fair, Asa Hutchinson, for example, yeah. in Arkansas, it, you can't lump him in the same boat with- No, uh, but he's been like totally denounced by the, yeah. the Republican Party of Arkansas, right? Yeah, there's there's a cost to saying such things like, actually, gravity is real. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure that's coming next. But looking out ahead just a little bit, 
um, in looking at an experiment. <laughs> <laughs> she, still real. <laughs> Jessica's proven my point. Uh, yeah. Um, and looking out ahead just at 2022, how do you oh, see yeah. things shaking out? Should we be nervous about a speaker, Kevin McCarthy, other than, you know, him gaveling Nancy Pelosi or, you know, do, are, are some of, I think, shouldn't laugh. well, it's, uh, looking at some it's of the so voting, <laughs> it is, there's so many intertwined, this is a kind of a complicated question, but um, there are so many intertwined issues. So, for example, a lot of the uh, state legislatures are passing these voting laws around the country, some of which I think are just performative, frankly, to, you know, you use that word. It's, it's in trying to give sucker in, su in, a, in a passive way to the big lie. Uh, but I think there are a few of these laws that really are substantive, that really do strike at the heart of the Democratic Party uh, or the Democratic process, I should say. So two questions. One is which laws, which election laws around the country are you concerned about? And then how concerned should we be about a Kevin McCarthy, Speaker Kevin McCarthy? I think we should generally be very concerned about a Republican Party that the bulk of which is unwilling to reject such an important big lie as the one that's been propagated and such a damaging one. And then all the other aspects of it as well, one of which is passing a bunch of laws, some of which are bad, very bad, some of which are pretty bad, some of which are meaningless and performative uh, on elections. But it's less, people are slightly missing the point, I think, when they look at each individual law, you know, um, and it's, it's, the, it's the net effect of them. And does it lay a predicate? Does it lay a groundwork for the party deciding in a close race? Well, the legislature has to step in now here. We can't have confidence that we have to replace these election officials or do our own appointment of electors. I don't think that's likely still, I guess, but I wouldn't have thought a lot of things were likely two or three years ago that have come close to happening, including what Trump tried to do with you November 3rd and January 6th with the Justice Department, the Defense Department and stuff. So I'm on the alarm side, uh, the concern side, partly because Honestly, you don't pay a big, the country won't pay, pay a big price for being too alarmed. You know, we'll, what we do, we'll, we'll overturn some of these laws and, you know, have slightly different election procedures with mail-in ballots, whereas to make an error on the other side opens up pretty scary possibilities. So I've, I've consistently been on the alarmed side and I remain that way. And I think people who, there's a little bit of a forest and trees problem, but, you know, if you look at the thing together, all together, the demagoguery, the nativism, the election, the, the big lie, the skepticism of government, some of which is justified, but of out of experts and the kind of America first rhetoric, and you just put it all in one big ball, it's it's bad. You know, this, this, it's worse than the sum of the parts. It, it, individually, could this decision here or that decision there be okay? Maybe we did close down too quickly last summer, keeping restaurants open outdoors wasn't crazy. You know, you can each individual thing some of them you can litigate and, and and obviously have your own, you know, have a complicated judgment on, but put together, which is what you have to do sort of in politics and try to think about it in a broader way, holistic way. I, I think it's pretty dangerous. Yeah. It does sound like you're a little bit more optimistic than a lot of other folks that the uh, Democrats will hold the House in 2022. I mean, I think it's I, I couldn't. I don't know. I, history would suggest they won't. On the other hand, so many things have gone contrary to history in the last several years that I don't have much faith in that. And I can see the Republicans overreaching, even for all the faith in Trump and all that and the tolerance of the Marjorie Taylor Greens. I don't know when people have to face up to the notion that they're going to be part of a governing majority. People might balk at that. And so I, I and Biden has done pretty well, in my view, and the economy 
may well be pretty good and hopefully we'll be over even this last surge of COVID with the Delta variant. And so, you know, it, it could be, an, it could be, it, the election is you could go counter to the historical norm. The historical norm is a strong one though. And it's that almost always the party in power, the party with the White House uh, loses, loses seats. That's not the that's not the factor that I'm looking at. I'm, I look at that as a as an old stock operator as a technical data point, and I'm not convinced that that technical data point holds. I'm more concerned about uh, specific um, voting laws as well as redistricting. I think it's fair to say that redistricting will result. I've heard anywhere from three to twelve net net yeah. uh, Republican seats. So those are the ones that I'm looking at. So the Democrats have to have a good day, but. I was curious, I went back to Irving Kristol's work and I've heard you make reference to this. Uh, three presidents that can be considered standards for neoconservatives include Teddy Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan, and I was surprised that Franklin Roosevelt was included in that list. So one, if FDR is on that list, why not Lyndon Johnson? And two, in some ways from what I've seen thus far, if FDR is on that list, might Joseph Biden be on that list? So I think my father, I can't remember the context in which you were, that he's probably trying to really distinguish neoconservatives from more traditional, you know, Bill Buckley, conservative conservatives who had always been anti-New Deal, anti-FDR. People like my father, A, they'd been pretty pro-FDR. They'd uh, been very pro-Truman, let's say, in, in 48, and just say pro-Hubert Humphrey Democrats and so forth. So I think they would be inclined to give, they were reminding maybe the old, my father was reminding the older conservatives that, you know, the New Deal did not work out that badly. Were there some stupid things? Sure. Could government be cut back a bit? Sure. But is it terrible that we have a safety net? And then with a great society, I take your point. I mean, people like my father were never upset about particularly Medicare, or, you know, and, and other, uh, so they were favor of the Civil Rights Act. You know, they thought this great society, the big government stuff went too far and had to counter, it had some uh, counterproductive effects. And of course, Vietnam didn't work out well. So maybe that's why LBJ doesn't make that list. But as I say, they were friendly to a lot of old fashioned Democrats in the 60s and 70s. Reagan, you know, for sort of obvious reasons, Cold War, and I think getting the economy going again. I mean, could, this is a big question about Biden. I mean, could he be, I don't know if he'd be exactly FDR, but maybe Truman, or, you know, could it be someone who sort of stabilizes the situation, uh, gets the country going in a reasonable direction? It's kind of a transition to other, Truman wasn't quite the next generation, that was really after Eisenhower, but ultimately the transition to the next generation. Uh, I do think Biden may be the only Democrat who could have beaten Trump in 2020. Uh, we all worked pretty hard to help him in the primaries and then in the general. And, um, you know, maybe he's what, you know, history works in funny ways and maybe he's what we he's what we need. Is I do think the future is very much up in the air in the sense that we have a temporary kind of, I don't know what it is exactly, calm before the storm or something, you know, somewhat stable leadership. The Democrats have very tenuous majorities, but they're holding in, the, in both houses. You've got competent people running things with Biden and Pelosi and Schumer, I would say. They know what they're doing. It's not like a, you know, ridiculous thing. Um, but they're all in their 70s. And where do the parties go? Where does each party go? Where do the politics go on, in Congress or in the executive branch? five, 10, 15 years from now, that I think is really hard to tell. It could be good. I and mean, things could get better. We could have a kind of new burst of energy and of uh, productivity and of people coming together. Maybe the old parties, the, the kind of incredible partisanship begins to break up. Uh, maybe it's overdone. You know, if you want the stock market analogy, it's like you can't, you know, we're like a 
partisanship bubble, you know, a polarization bubble. And at some point it does burst, but people have been waiting for it to burst for a little while here and it hasn't. But of course, stock market bubbles there that people always expect them to burst for what, two, three years until they finally yeah. do, right? Like, yeah, 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 something like that. So maybe we're in a weird pre-bubble situation. A friend of mine has uses this analogy, he's in business for Trump. I mean, he keeps thinking that, you know, it looks very powerful now, but maybe it is a little bit of a kind of, at some point it just kind of, you know, pops. But anyway, it hasn't yet. And you can't count on that happening. And meanwhile, a lot of damage can be done during bubbles. So you really need to make sure the institutions are strong. I do think that's what people like me have been so obsessed yeah. with institutions and norms. I mean, you need to make sure that we have a Justice Department that's somewhat independent of the White House. You need to make sure that the military has its code of conduct in place and isn't going to just let some politicians start to order it to do unlawful things. You know, you do need to have a kind of structures in place that can weather the storm. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, one last question for me, and then we'll start to wrap up. Uh, but I, I want to give, I feel like I've monopolized this conversation, but uh, we literally have 26 pages worth of questions, most of which we haven't gotten to. Um, but I, I, since I'm such a fan of defending democracy together and the Republican Accountability Project, often refer to the GOP Democracy Report Card, the rap sheet as it's called, have, have you seen any effects from, from these efforts? And what do you hope to achieve from them going forward? So I think the short answer is, on the one hand, we've seen effects in the sense that you know, a lot of, I think we've given a home to a lot of people who felt homeless with the Trumpy Republican Party and a, a liberal Democratic Party, at least certainly in the four years of the Trump presidency. We've done some good, I think we've stopped some bad things from happening and blown the whistle on some things. And as I say, given people a place to rally to, the main practical thing we've done was we helped uh, defeat Trump and elect Biden with our Republican voters against Trump, those videos, which do, I think, did have an effect. I think we were pretty careful and strategic and getting people to do those, encouraging them to do so, using them on social media, on, on digital ads and social media. We didn't go for a big splash. We didn't, we did some splashy ads, but we didn't do too much of that. We really tried to speak to voters. I learned a lot. My colleague, Sarah Long, deserves most of the credit for this. She's thought a lot and studied a lot of marketing and so forth and persuasion. And that, you know, it turned out we did focus groups. This is kind of interesting on the elitism and populism stuff and on the distrust of government that Jess was talking about. I mean, people did not want to hear from me, you know, or they didn't want to hear from their senator or governor even. They didn't want to even hear from celebrities, which normally you'd think, okay, an actor, that's kind of, you know, they, they just distrust all of that. Any nicely packaged ad, this was spring, summer of 2020, we were testing this, nicely packaged ad, even if it showed Trump doing terrible things, they think, ah, who knows, we really did those things even. They can cut the video these days to make it look like he's saying things he's not. What did get to people, and this is what we ended up doing, and I think we had an effect, was these little uh, self-produced uh, video, you know, videos on, on your phone, literally on the iPhone, that we asked people to send in to us. We clipped them a little to, you know, just make them short enough that people would watch. And But we didn't, uh, you know, literally we clipped a few things out. We didn't add anything. We didn't edit them, so to speak. We didn't produce them. Some of them we used later for ads that we, you know, we, we produced them a little bit. But even so, the video itself was what it was. And and this these were videos of people, many of all of them, almost all of them were pu Republicans or former Republicans, almost all of them who had voted Republican most of their lifetime, many of whom had voted for Trump in 2016. And so the typical video, you may have seen some of them, you know, was sort of, you know, I'm, Joe Blow from 
uh, here from uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. You know, I voted for Trump in 2016. I was hoping he'd do better. I thought it was time for an outsider, but I was wrong. It's just he's doing too much damage. Or I'm pro-life, so I voted for Trump, but he's not helping the pro-life cause with the way he's treating immigrants and so forth. So these were real people. They, they We weren't scripted. They said what they believed. The Biden campaign sort of got annoyed at us at one point. We heard it directly. We couldn't talk to them because of the FEC rules uh, that, you know, some of them said, look, I don't much like Biden. You know, I, I don't I don't have much confidence that he's going to be a great president. But you know what? We can't afford another four years of Trump. So I'm going to go in there and vote for Biden and then we'll just figure out what we do th- three or four years from now for the next one. And it was the Biden campaign. One problem with political advertising is that each campaign has to say its candidate is the greatest thing ever. But the more effective pitch and the truer pitch to an actual real citizen is, look, I'm conflicted like you are. I'm not crazy about either of these people. I had hopes even for this one guy, but it's not working out. So that turned out to be most effective. And it taught me that people do respond to their peers more than to their superiors, so to speak. I mean, or you know, people they think of as big shots or self, self, self-proclaimed self book big shots. Uh, that you do need to speak to people's doubts and hesitations. And this is, I think, it's not like, I guess, I guess this wouldn't work for advertising soft drinks or ice cream or, you know, there everything's it's the best ever, right? You know, you wouldn't do an ice cream. Now, this ice cream isn't great, but it's kind of better than the other one you can get. And it's also <laughs> a discount, you know, but that actually works in politics because it's, it's more real, you know, it's what people kind of suspect. It's authentic because they have so much slick production and these younger generations, they can get in front of their own phone. Look at what they're doing on Instagram. They make themselves look like supermodels. They just want, they want reality. So it sounds like you really struck a chord. And I, and I think actually, I mean, not, not to take away from the rest of your point there, Bill, that's, that's part of why we're hoping that, that these conversations that we're doing, the conversations with Bill Crystal, this, this sort of format gives people a window that we're struggling with the same questions and issues that they are. And we want them to have a forum to listen to the authenticity of that search for truth. And I, you know, I think, and I think like I do these conversations with experts and, mm-hmm. you know, what's good, they're long form like this one is about an hour. And, 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 you know, I'll ask some of them and they'll say, well, I'm not sure about that. That's a tough one. You know, here's the arguments on this side or that side. I did one with Ashish Shah, the public health dean at Brown, who's one of our best really analysts, I think of the, of the pandemic and is very hard-headed and, and calm and confident, uh, not ca- calm and, uh, in his analysis, but also will say, look, we're not sure about this. Or, I got this wrong. I, th- I didn't quite realize this would that be this a good interview. problem. Yeah. And I think that's very, yeah, I agree with you. That, uh, sometimes when you do these conversations, people say, well, will you edit it afterwards to take out the sort of what we go, you know, where we uh, aren't certain about something where there's a little bit of back and forth or inconclusiveness. And we would in principle, and if something really silly happened, we would take it out as a courtesy, obviously, if someone just, you know, misspoke or something. But generally, we don't, actually. And it turns out people like the kind of the naturalness, the truth, the truth, the true character where someone says, I can't quite remember what year that happened. But I think it, but, you know, but it was important that I'm making this, you know, that Eisenhower did X or something. And people think, oh, well, here's a distinguished historian, but he's, you know, he doesn't, he's not just reading off some you know, talking points. He's he's remembering and thinking about this these events, and he doesn't have every single part of it committed perfectly to memory. So yeah, I think the naturalness uh, is important for people. I think it does speak to people, reassures people uh, that not everything is a simply produced commercial. Yeah. Well, I, I have a question. Uh, yeah. Can, may I have a last question, sir? 
Well, I was going to ask you if you have a last question, then I have one more question. Oh, I one, see. How that he goes. always is going to he's always going to come in and Bigfoot you at the very end. But. No, no, no. It's it's kind of a Jedi mind trick question, but that, it's OK. But then we have important business. But go go ahead. Jess. Mine is not. I don't think a Jedi mind trick, but it might have a crystal ball in it. Um, You know, there we're already getting these these uh, races that are telling us a little bit about the electorate, Texas six, uh, the Virginia governor's race. Um, I'm also closely watching what's happening with uh, the, the 20 people people vying to replace Senator Pat Toomey in the state where I'm currently broadcasting from, from all of the political races there are to watch, what are you keeping an eye on to give you certain indications of where the electorate is headed and more importantly, where our country is headed? So I think in the primaries, there are some pretty uh, obvious ones and more of them will emerge, probably just redistricting. We don't quite know what some of the House seats will look like. Where they'll be on the Republican side, they'll be different flavors of Trumpy candidates and some truly non-Trumpy candidates. And what is the market for someone who's not a Trump uh, apologist or enthusiast? And will people be more open to at least someone who's okay with Trump, but isn't just repeating everything Trump says, as opposed to the most Trumpy of Trumpy candidates? And so in various states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, they'll be interesting. Senate primaries on the Republican side, uh, a lot of House seats where this will happen too. I think generally looking at open seats, if, if, if viewers are interested in this, looking at seats where there's no incumbent gives you a better x-ray into what people, what the electorate is thinking. If there's an incumbent, it distorts things. People either like the incumbent or they don't like yeah. the incumbent based on various historical things. Whereas in a way, a, a straight open seat, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania is retiring, a bunch of people are going to run for that seat in both parties. You get a sense of where the balance of power in each party is. And I'd say that's very much true on the Democratic side, where they'll be pretty consistently quite progressive Democrats, maybe not quite as much as AOC and the famous ones, but, but in that direction versus, let's call them Biden Democrats. I mean, there was just an election in Cleveland and uh, where yeah. the, le- the more Biden Democrat defeated the AOC, Bernie Sanders endorsed Democrat, I think. Also the New York City mayor's race. The, yeah, uh, no, they've been on the Democratic side. This encourages someone like me, you know, three or four straight races where the moderate has won. Uh, it's sometimes coming uphill from behind against a more progressive candidate. And the conventional wisdom is so much for all the energy on the left is on the progressive side. Well, it turns out there's a lot of liberals who want liberal, more liberal policies than I would probably want in, in the best of all worlds. But but they're kind of Biden liberals and they don't want to, they still want markets. They want capitalism. They want, you know, a strong American presence in the world. They don't want to trash their fellow, our history, but they want, you know, liberal policies. So, uh, but we'll see in both parties, I think, in the primaries. Uh, I think we'll, we'll know a lot more in a year where the parties are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sh- shout out to our friend, Emily Matthews. She's working with a Republican candidate in the Pennsylvania Senate race, uh, Craig Snyder. And I'm encouraged by candidates like this. He's in a wide field, a lot of other Republicans who are all basically Trump wannabes. Uh, And Craig has flat out said, no, I still have my conservative principles, but I think a lot of where the party has gone is absolutely wrong. We've lost our our moorings. Um, So I'm rooting for for candidates like that on the Republican side. I was a big fan of, of how the Democratic primary in New York City mayor's race worked out, you know, um, but that, that's just uh, my, my own opinion. OK, so here's my last color question. commentary guy here. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing the color commentary. Um, uh, Craig Snyder was a student of mine at Penn. Oh, I was an assistant professor and he was he's like seven or eight years younger. He was an undergraduate. And we stayed in touch over the years. No, and I'm encouraged by we'll see how he does. Yeah. He's taking a pretty tough, I mean, courageous, but, you know, underdog position of just saying I, I want nothing to do with Trump. 
But let's see, you know, it'll be interesting to see how many Republicans are, are open to that a year from now in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here's here's my last question. Do you have any questions for us? What have you guys learned doing this podcast? I'll let you go first. Corey. Oh, geez. You usually, you usually punt to me. So I'm going to punt to you while I think of a more erudite answer while you're flailing. I don't mean I almost don't want like the erudite, but like just uh, <laughs> are your views of the country or of public discourse changed much by having done this for as long as for however long you have been doing it? Yeah, about six, eight months, something like that. Yeah. Um, well, I've learned a lot from the folks that we've had the opportunity to talk to. I've learned a lot about the inside game of political strategy or about the ethics of journalism, that good journalism is still being done. Um, politicians who uh, or candidates who are who still have nuance in their approach. You know, I, I, our state senator, Scott Wilk, came on. Um, in early January, late December, he's a Republican here in California, one of the few state elected um, or, or uh, in the state Senate um, Republicans, but he has a Democrat for a chief staff. You know, he has a diverse range of people on his staff. So I've learned I've learned that there's still reason to be hopeful, uh, that there are still good people with good principles, with good grounding, thoughtful people of goodwill that are still really involved, you know, that it's not all what some of the programs, uh, uh, you know, at uh, from five to eight o'clock at night will have you think. And it just gives me reason to be encouraged. I've also had some conversation. My dad was uh, my co-host here a couple, a few times uh, and still will come on on occasion to be uh, a little troublemaker that he is. So I've had some meaningful conversations with him, uh, religious issues, political issues, so for me, it's been overall edifying. I don't know if that gives you a specific answer. No, it's good. That's yeah. interesting. Cheers me up. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Are I'm, you going to uncheer me? Uncheer me up, Jess? Yeah, <laughs> probably. Um, I mean, on, on the on the happy side, I'm I am um, I am comforted that there are still thinking people that we can find to talk to us on this program that have a different way of approaching the issues that are more nuanced. Um, on the unhappy side, I. I'm very much struck by how fragile the Republican Party's coalitions are, in particular because I was raised in a family that came into it, a lot of it through the, the moral majority and um, the sort of traditional values of the 80s. And, and yet I'm from an immigrant family with, with Jewish roots and New York roots, and we're very close to our immigrant heritage. So I'm, I'm very surprised oftentimes to find that how much nativism is in the party and is being embraced by the party a party that I, that my family came into um, largely because it was about, you know, liberty and freedom and free and, and not free markets completely unregulated, but a meritocracy, a genuine belief that a meritocracy was how we should build this country. So I'm, I am, I am very much struck by that and, uh, and very much struck by the mistakes the party's made in terms of outreach to immigrants and to immigrant communities in particular, just stunning to me how clearly uh, not only just a political mistake, but how, how the party could be so much bigger uh, now if, if the advice of the 2012 autopsy had been followed to do outreach to the Hispanic community, which largely has a lot more in common with Republican ideals than Democratic ideals, uh, from my vantage point as a journalist. Yeah. 
All right. So uh, like I said, we have 26 pages of this stuff, so we could go on and on, but I won't, uh, I won't keep you prisoner. Um, last but not least, how can we find you, your work on the bulwark and conversations with Bill Crystal? So the bulwark.com, that's the website there. You can just Google conversations with Bill Crystal or go to conversations with BillCrystal.org. And, um, and so uh, Google's a great thing, but you can just find most of the stuff without even remembering whether it's .com, .org, the bulwark, bulwark. You know, I remember the old days, right? You always had to like have these bookmarked uh, websites because you couldn't, yeah. you know, remember the exact spelling or something like that. But no, what I, are you going to have on your your podcast next week when we when this airs? So we let me just think. Oh, actually, this so we just did this one with Ashish Shah, which is I think very good on uh, the pandemic, which I really do recommend. And it's it was a week that one's ago, out, right? It's, yeah. out. it's about five, six days ago, very balanced, but he's, he's worried. I mean, taking, you got to take the Delta variant very seriously. And, and the combination of that and 30% unvaccinated is not good. Um, most of us who are vaccinated will be fine. We're going to get a little sick, but we'll be fine. But uh, the degree to which we'll have much more, uh, not just death and, and, and illness, which is bad, but, you know, it could disrupt the school openings and so forth. It's, it's, we thought we were really coming out of this on a kind of glide path. And now we're hitting a pretty big, Bump. So that's a good conversation. The next one's on the Federalist Papers with David Epstein, who wrote an excellent oh. book about that right. a few years ago. So we have a bunch of different topics. Uh, I hope people take a look and take a look at the bulwark and take a look at this podcast, which is I've really enjoyed it. So thank, thanks for oh, that's me. terrific. Yeah, I'm I'm really encouraged by uh, independent media outlets like the Bulwark and the Dispatch. Uh, I think you know it's that that they they also give me hope for the future. Good. So I'll just wrap it up by thanking you again for spending the time. I know we spent a little bit of extra time here, so I, I really appreciate it. And I, I learned a lot just from sitting with you. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading more of your work as well as both of your parents' work. <laughs> um, and as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Please smash leave, it. Smash it. Smash it. <laughs> leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and recommend us to a friend. We'd love to grow our little community here. Thanks again and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>